Tonight we're continuing our study of Isaiah, and uh, this evening we'll be in Isaiah chapter 7, and beginning in verse 17, running into chapter 8, which deals with the coming Assyrian invasion. And uh, just kind of review just a little bit, a couple of things that we talked about last week. Remember the historical setting. The historical setting is you have uh, Ahaz, who is the king of Judah in the southern kingdom. And uh, then you have um, Pekah, who is the king of Israel in the northern kingdom. And you have Rezin, who is the king of Syria. And Syria and Israel are seeking to form an alliance. And most, most historians, scholars believe the reason for this alliance was so that they could push back against the threat of Assyria from the north. So the, the emperor, the king of Assyria is Tiglath-Pileser III, and uh, he is trying to expand his territory. He's, in, he's uh, expanding his influence in the region. And uh, so he's putting pressure down on Syria and Israel. So they've joined together to form an alliance against Assyria. And some, some believe that that's why they want Judah to join with them. And so they want Judah to join this alliance to fight against Assyria. Or uh, perhaps Israel and Syria are just wanting to expand their power. But for whatever reason, they go into Judah and they attack. And they, they pose a threat to God's people, to Judah. And, and so the king of, of Judah, Ahaz, he is concerned about this. And he's worried, he's terrified. And God sends Isaiah to him with essentially a very simple message. And that is trust. Trust in God. Ahaz was tempted and had already made arrangements to put his trust in people. And so he tried to do an end around, around, uh, around Syria and Israel and get Tiglath-Pileser III from Assyria to show him some favor if he would give him loyalty. And so instead of trusting in God to take care of the threat, Ahaz thought, I'm going to take the political route. I'm going to take the, uh, the, the man-centered route and use man's wisdom. But Isaiah comes to him and basically says, you don't need to trust in princes. You don't need to trust in people. You need to trust in the Lord. And Isaiah offers Ahaz the opportunity to ask God for a sign, for a miraculous sign. He says, anything in heaven above, anything in the earth beneath in the depths, ask for anything you want. And Ahaz uh, declines. It comes across as kind of pious, but really it's disobedient. Uh, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, he says. I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. But Isaiah says, well, the Lord's going to give you a sign anyway. And so through Isaiah, the Lord gives the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. And we talked about some of the different views of how that should be understood in the context, as well as how Matthew applies it to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. So we talked about that a little bit uh, last time. Beginning in verse number 17, and really then through the rest of the chapter and on into chapter 8 of Isaiah, the, the focus is on this impending threat from Assyria. And basically at the end of Isaiah's confrontation with Ahaz, he basically tells him 
that because you fail to trust the Lord, there are going to be consequences for that. And so Assyria is not only going to come and take care of Syria and Israel, but it's also going to come on down and put pressure and make life difficult for you down here in Judah. And that's because you didn't listen to the Lord. You didn't trust in him. And so that's what this section is broadly about. And so just a brief outline of the section that we're going to look at tonight. In chapter 7, 17 through 25, is a very poetic, figurative description of the destruction of the land that's going to happen because of this invading Assyrian army. Then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we have the birth of another son of Isaiah, whom he gives a special name with prophetic significance, um, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Keep that, keep that in your file for the next time you have a son or offer that to your children if, they have a, if you have a grandson or something like that. Keep that in your Rolodex. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And so this is a, has a prophetic significance to the times. And then uh, the last section is the judgment of the people. And, and God's, the way that God is, is coming, dealing harshly with them, but it's because of their disobedience. It's because of their lack of faith in the Lord. So that's kind of the, the broad picture of what we hope to get through tonight. So let's look at the first section in 717 through 25, which has to do with the destruction of the land. And really this is, in essence, punishment for trusting in Assyria for protection rather than the Lord. And so because they put their trust in men, they're going to face the consequences of that. So Assyria will remove the threat of the Syria-Israel alliance. That's what Ahaz was putting his hope in. But the problem is he's not going to stop there. Uh, most uh, power-hungry rulers don't stop when they get to a particular place. They just keep on marching, don't they? And so, yes, uh, Tiglath-Pileser III is going to take care of the Israel-Syria alliance threat, but he's going to keep on moving into Judah as well. So verse 17, this is Isaiah to King Ahaz. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So very clearly telling him the threat that's coming. And then in verses 18 and 19, again, beginning here, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, a lot of, lot of figurative language, a lot of symbols, pictures. And the first picture that we get in verses 18 and 19 is an image of flies and bees. Flies coming from Egypt, bees coming from Assyria. So verse 18 says, in that day, and again, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily speaking of something far off in the distant future, such as at the end of history. Uh, I think this is talking about a very near-term uh, judgment of the Lord that he's about to bring. But it, it's uh, spoken of in language like the day of the Lord, isn't it? So in that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta, so that's Egypt, and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks, on all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. So this is figurative poetic language. What, is, what does this mean? 
Well, if you had to make a choice between a fly or a bee bothering you, which one would you choose? Probably a fly, right? Flies, flies are nuisance. Flies are a nuisance, but bees hurt. Bees sting. So that, that's probably the, the indication here is that Egypt is going to be bothersome. It's going to be a nuisance. It's going to be a pest uh, to you from the south. But the real hurt is going to come from Assyria. That, that's, many people believe that's kind of the imagery that, that's being spoken of here. But it also fits very well with what we know from that area of the world at that time in history. For centuries, that portion of land where Israel was located was uh, basically looked at as like a land bridge between the, the northern, like Babylon, Assyria, and then Egypt in the south. And basically that piece of land was fought over by empires for centuries. And so it was, it was always viewed as a prime piece of land uh, to either hold off Egypt from the south or to, or to set up to invade Egypt or, or vice versa to, to hold up for Egypt to hold it, to hold off the Assyrians and create a buffer there. And so it, it was always kind of there in the middle in, in always under pressure from both sides. But uh, Isaiah is saying, you're going to, you're going to feel this, the weight of um, this political um, armies, you know, this pressure from both sides, but the real pain, because of the context, the real pain is coming from Assyria, isn't it? The king of Assyria is coming. And then we see uh, in verse 20, a reference to shame and disgrace, no more dignity. In verse 20, it speaks of um, that the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River. He tells us who that is, the king of Assyria. So he uses metaphorical language, but the king of Assyria is a razor. And the king of Assyria, what he's going to do is he's going to shave your head. He's going to shave the hair off of you, cut your beard. And just for, for uh, the sake of understanding, this was an, in, in Israel, really in most of the ancient world, this was a very disgraceful thing. To, to be shaved against your will was like the most insulting thing that, that could be done to you. And so this is God saying, you're going to be put to shame, disgrace. And then we see another reference in verses 21 and 22 to one cow and two sheep. And what does that mean? Uh, probably it indicates the idea that there's going to be very sparsely populated in terms of both animals and people. So in verse 21 and 22, it says, In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. And now we think curds and honey, that doesn't sound like a very appealing meal. Uh, but in, in the ancient world um, and in, in other places in scripture, it is spoken of in terms of the food of royalty. So it, it's not necessarily um, the meal of a, of a pauper, of someone who is poor. But the, what this is indicating, though, is that basically because of the devastation that's going to come on Judah, so th this is kind of like a mixed blessing. There's going to be food for people, 
but there's not going to be very many people there to enjoy it. And you're not going to need very many livestock to produce the, fee the food that these people are going to need because it's, they're going to be wiped out. And so it's kind of like a mixed blessing. There's going to be food there, but there's going to be no people there left to enjoy it, is what many people think is the imagery there. And then in verses 23 through 25, we see the image of briars and thorns, which conveys the fact that there's not going to be a harvest to bring in. So verse 23 says, In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills, once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They'll become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. And so the imagery there is just of devastation, of places where there were lush vineyards are now going to be empty, broken down briars and thorns. And if you remember, um, chapter 5 of Isaiah painted this exact picture. It painted the picture of Israel as the Lord's vineyard. Remember that in Isaiah 5? And because of Israel's rebellion, its, uh, its breach of covenant with the Lord, Isaiah says, uh, You're, this vineyard, Israel, is going to become uh, a wasteland and specifically mentions briars and thorns. And so this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah had already said was going to come. And so it's going to become a wasteland. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we get this very short description of an incident in Isaiah's life in which um, he, he and his wife have a child and name it, this name, which has prophetic significance. And so verse one, the Lord says to Isaiah, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, the NIV here is uh, putting this in language that we understand, but uh, when we think of it, uh, the, the, the Hebrew words that are used here more have to do with a board and a stylus. So like a board perhaps with wax on it and a stylus that would uh, engrave words on it. But the idea was to create a document of record is, is what the, the uh, symbolism is. And so write on it, create a document of record and write down this name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And what does that mean? Well, uh, most are agreed on the basic essence of what the phrase means. It means something like swift is the plunder, speedy is the prey. And so it's kind of a, a doubled um, synonymous phrase there, where both sections of it have the idea of speed and both sections of it have the idea of plunder or prey. So it's kind of a dual uh, for the sake of emphasis. Uh, another uh, translator puts it this way, uh, speeding is booty, hastening is plunder. And then this is probably more of a, um, a paraphrase of what it means and what it's intended to communicate. The spoil of the two kings will quickly be taken. Who are the two kings that is, that's referred to here? The two kings that were the threat to Ahaz. So King Rezin of Syria 
King Pekah of Israel, their alliance, these two kings, uh, they're going to be taken out of the way. The Lord's going to take care of them. Which remember back in chapter 7, we, we saw this last week. What was Isaiah's message to Ahaz? He was fearful of this threat, this alliance. And Isaiah says to him, this threat, this attack, it will not succeed. It will not happen. And the message to him was to trust in the Lord. Trust God. He will take care of this threat. He decided not to. He had already made plans to put his trust in Assyria. But now the Lord is saying, because you didn't trust me, Assyria is going to be your downfall. And here is just another reminder that you should have trusted me. Because Isaiah is going to give birth to a son, and the name of the name that he gives to his son is a reminder that the Lord was going to take care of this problem all along. That he was going to quickly take these two kings off the scene. So verse 2, So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jer- uh, Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Witness to the solemn occasion, right? Solemn occasion of writing this down as a record in advance. And then, verse 3, the Isaiah made love, he had relations with a prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So there's the fulfillment. So write this down. Then nine months later is the fulfillment of this. Uh, And again, uh, hasty is the plunder, speedy is the prey, something like that. Uh, as a reminder that the Lord was going to quickly take care of these two kings. And then verse 4, For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement as to uh, the role that this, um, this woman played. In verse number 3, she's called a prophetess. There's disagreement as to whether she actually fulfilled a prophetic role herself, uh, which we have many instances of female prophetesses in the scripture. So that wouldn't necessarily be out of ordinary in Israel. Uh, So some view it that way. Others view this as that's just another way of saying Mrs. Isaiah or or the wife of the prophet. I, I tend more toward she was in this role as a prophetess, as um, and she became Isaiah's wife. And so Isaiah and his wife, they have this son. And like his previous son, Shear Jashub, he names his second son with a name that has prophetic significance to, to the times and to the message that the Lord is having him to give. And just want to pause here. Remember last time we were talking about one of the views of Isaiah 7.14 that um, a woman, a virgin, will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, one, of the, one of the views of that passage is that it is linked to this passage in 8, 1 through 4. And there are some, there are some similarities. Let me just point out a couple of the similarities. Uh, one is just the very, one is the timing of it. So one is the timing in which there is this announcement of the birth of a son, and then the very next 
in the very next chapter, we read about Isaiah and his wife having a son. So timing is one issue, but also is, is language. So she gave, she conceived and gave birth to a son, exactly the same language of chapter seven, verse 14. Um, and also, uh, and, and you will name him. So there's seven fourteen, and here in eight, three, there's the, the linkage of, and give him this name and give him this name. Um, and then also there is the linkage of the timing of the boys growing up and of events that are linked to those specific times. So if you remember back in chapter seven, I think it's 15 and 16, it says, uh, before the boy, uh, or he will grow up and he will eat curds and honey. Interestingly enough, isn't it? Because that was going to be the food that was going to be left in Judah when Assyria attacks. So he was going to eat curds and honey. And then it also says in seven fifteen and 16, that, uh, as the boy is eating curds and honey, and before he is able to tell the right from the wrong, these two kings are going to be taken care of. So, so the birth of this son that is to be called Emmanuel in seven fourteen to sixteen, he is his birth and his his youth coincides with the removal of these two kings of Syria and Israel. Now here we see the same thing with Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz is that when, before the boy is old enough to know how to say my, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that is Syria, and the plunder of Samaria, that is Israel, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So you have time references that match up. Um, and so what's interesting is that um, if, if Isaiah is meeting with King Ahaz, around 735, 734 BC, we have historical records that show that Assyria attacked um, Israel and, and Syria in about 732 BC, which would put this child at about two years old, two or three years old. So the point where a child is beginning to know how to speak, to say my father and my mother, uh, the point where a child is beginning to eat whole foods, um, curds and honey, and be able to begin to tell the difference between right and wrong. So that's why some people make this link that, um, and also another instance or another reason is that as we move forward in chapter eight, we're going to see two more references to Emmanuel in chapter eight. And so many people link those together. But as I was saying last time, I think we have to do justice to the original historical context of Isaiah's day and, and that there is a near event that he's pointing to in Isaiah 7, 14, and also in 8, 1 to 3, but that that is uh, what, might, what we might call a type of a, of a grander fulfillment that is still to come, which Matthew points us to in Matthew chapter 1, where he, where he says, and this is to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So we might look at this, this child, Emmanuel, or this child, if it is this son of Isaiah, we might look at him as like a type, a prefigurement of a greater fulfillment to come with Jesus, the, the true Emmanuel, the one who is really in the flesh, God with us. So many people, that's why they link these two uh, together. And like I said last week, I think there is a sense in which there's a near fulfillment, but 
perhaps typological of an even greater fulfillment to come. So this is, and, and it, this is a sign. This is a prophetic sign. The naming of his son with this meaning is a, is a prophetic warning and a reminder that you should have trusted in the Lord because he was going to take care of this. But the judgment is going to come on the people, verses 5 through 22. And so we see the Assyrian evasion in verses 5 through 10. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, that is the king of Syria and the king of Israel. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. Again, he tells us what he's referring to is the king of Assyria. With all his pomp, it will overflow with all its channels, run over all its banks. You ever seen a massive flood, the damage that it can do? Uh, maybe a, a, a surge that happens with a hurricane or maybe heavy rains that cause a river to overflow. It can cause incredible destruction. And that's the imagery of this invading Assyrian army, that he's going to come and it's going to be destruction. It's going to run over all its banks and sweep on into Judah. So, yes, he's going to take care of Syria and Israel, but the flood's not going to stop there. It's going to keep on sweeping into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. There's Emmanuel. At the end of verse 8, we see a call or address to Emmanuel. It, it almost seems as if the prophet is taken back by the overwhelming disaster that is going to come upon Judah. In verses 7 and 8, uh, we see a description of the invasion of Assyria in terms of an overwhelming flood. And the prophet Isaiah calls out to Emmanuel almost in shock and sadness that this devastation will happen to the Lord's land. This is Emmanuel's land, but it will be overrun with adversaries. It's almost as if Isaiah is asking how this can be. So the question then is, what's the relationship of the name of the boy in chapter 7, verse 14, Emmanuel, and this address to the Lord as Emmanuel in chapter 8, verse 8? Uh, one commentator, John McKay, says this, It is difficult to see here anything other than a messianic prophecy, a reference to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, or some royal child of Ahaz, does not do justice to the scene. What is at stake is the fulfillment of the covenant promises. Even so, however ominous and anomalous the immediate prospect of judgment may be, mention of Emmanuel and the significance of his name hints at the non-finality of what is seen. In other words, he's saying, though the king of Assyria will march on Judah, it will not be Judah's final end. And it seems that verses 9 and 10 point to that fact. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. So it's a war cry. There's invasion coming. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, I want, I want you to think about this, by the way. That last phrase, God is with us, is in Hebrew, Emmanuel. So twice in Isaiah 8, one time in Isaiah 7, devise your strategy, 
but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. Who is that talking to? Well, it is in the context of a description of judgment on Judah for their lack of faith. There appears to be a really quick shift here in Isaiah's perspective brought on by the mention of Emmanuel and the fact that God is still with his people. So verses 9 and 10 are actually addressed to the other nations, perhaps with Assyria as the focus. So the message is that even though Assyria will come and bring some devastation on Judah, Assyria will not ultimately defeat Judah. In fact, the nations and the distant lands will ultimately be shattered. Assyria and the other nations will raise their war cry against Judah, but they will ultimately be defeated. They will be shattered. They can propose their plans and devise their strategies, but Judah will not be defeated until the Lord is ready for them to be defeated. Judah is still the Lord's inheritance. He is still their Emmanuel, God with us. So God will use Assyria to bring punishment to his people for their rebellion and their lack of faith. But the sovereign Lord of history will not allow the Assyrians to go beyond what he has allowed. Assyria will ultimately be turned back and they will in the end be defeated themselves. So the Lord chastens his people, but he has not forgotten them. He is still the God who is with them. And there may be a a slight foreshadowing here of Isaiah's woes of judgment to the nations that we'll see later in chapters 13 to 25. There, he specifically calls out nations by name who have been hostile toward the Lord's people. They will ultimately be judged for their idolatry, their wickedness, and their cruelty to God's chosen people. God is sovereign. He can use a wicked nation such as Assyria as an instrument of chastening for his people, but they will ultimately be held accountable for their wickedness. It's very similar to what we see in Habakkuk, where God shows the prophet Habakkuk that he will use Babylon to judge his people, but then he will in his own time turn around and judge Babylon for the wicked people that they are. So the message here in chapter 8, 9 to 10 is that even in the midst of judgment, the Lord does not abandon his people and forsake his covenant with them. He also does not ignore the wickedness of other nations and their cruelty toward Israel. So Assyria will be used as an instrument of judgment by the Lord to chasten his people, but Assyria will also in the end face their due judgment from the righteous Lord. And this is something that we see often in the prophets. That is one of their hallmarks is that, is that whatever is going on in history, whatever is going on in world events, they're not just random events, are they? They're not, they're not just random events. They're not happen chance they're, It's God who is controlling providentially ruling over all of these things. And then the last section has to do with a, a proper response to the Lord proper response to Yahweh, waiting for Yahweh, verses 11 through 22. So we see assessing the options, verses 11 through 15. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. And this is probably referring to the fear that they felt by the threat of Syria-Israel. 
And I, and the Lord is saying to Isaiah, and he is saying to the people, you don't have to be afraid of what the Lord can rescue you from. But they decided to put their trust in men instead. So the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So again, King Ahaz said, I'm going to trust in the king of Assyria. But Isaiah is reminding him, no, it's the Lord who's holy. It's the, he's the one you should fear and dread. He's the one you should put your trust in. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Does that language sound familiar? The Lord Jesus quotes it. Um, the Apostle Peter quotes it as well. The idea here is of a stumbling stone, a stumbling block. And in the New Testament, Jesus is that stumbling stone. And that stone in the New Testament, that stumbling stone, that rock, it's either a rock that serves as your foundation in which you're built on, or it's a rock which you trip over and are crushed by. And that's kind of how it's being used here as well. So in the New Testament, it was your response to Jesus that determined whether or not it was a crushing stone or a foundation stone. Same thing here with the Lord. Those who trust in him, he is a foundation stone. But those who rebel against him in unbelief, he is a crushing stone. And he'll be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. And they will be snared and captured. Why? Because they rebelled against the Lord. And so they're tripping over him as a stone, if you will. Divinely given hope, verses 16 through 18. Bind, this, bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. If I were to say that is the lesson, the spiritual lesson from this whole section, that's it right there. Chapter 8, verse 17. What was King Ahaz's problem? He didn't trust in the Lord. What were all the people who were fearing all of these political events and, and military uh, movements that were going on around them? They were afraid. What was their problem? They weren't trusting in the Lord. And so this is the, the core message in all of this is that the Lord's people need to trust in him. Not in men's wisdom, not in political alliances, because those will all fail you. But the Lord will not fail. And so our trust is to be in him and to wait on him, to be patient and to trust in his timing. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. I take this as Isaiah speaking, and he's referring to his own sons that have been given symbolic names. So his sons, along with their symbolic names, they are signs. They're signs to the people of how they should be responding to the Lord in trust, in faith, in obedience. And then we see the false alternative. So if verses 17 and 18 show the right way to respond to the Lord in trust, in obedience, this is the wrong alternative. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, 
Should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Probably a a subtle reference here back to uh, King Saul. Remember King Saul and the witch of Endor, 1 Kings 28. And he was afraid, wasn't he? Saul was afraid and he wanted to hear from Samuel. Samuel was already dead. And so he comes up with this crazy plan to try to get a witch to bring Samuel back from the dead, to try to consult the dead. And the message here in Isaiah's time is, there's only one place where you should go for truth. There's one place where you should go for wisdom, for hope, and that is the Lord. You don't need to be going to these other places, which were, it was common in the ancient world to consult all of these mediums and spiritists and, and magicians and try to give it, get a divination of what the, the message from the gods is. And Isaiah's message is, no, just, just trust. Trust in the Lord and, and he's already sent his prophets to give you the message. You just need to trust. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, that is the word of the Lord or the word of the prophet, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's the result of those who put their trust in spiritists and mediums and seeking help from elsewhere instead of from the Lord. So if I were to try to put all this whole section into just a few ideas, it would be one, the Lord reigns over everything, right? So he's the sovereign Lord, everything that's happening in the world whether it be in Israel's time in 735 BC or whether it be in today's time in the year 2018, the Lord is providentially in control of all things. And the Lord has also clearly delivered his word. So uh, King Ahaz, the people of Judah, they were going around here and there seeking for guidance, seeking for wisdom, but the Lord had already spoken. Well, today we already have the spoken word of the Lord, don't we? We have the word, the written word, which guides us into the way of the Lord and guides us into the way of salvation. And so the Lord is the the ruler of history, the ruler of the universe. He has already spoken. And so therefore our response is to listen to that word and to obey that word and to put our trust in him and his word not in our own abilities, in our own wisdom, in our own uh, friendships and alliances that we come up with. Uh, The ultimate trust is in the Lord and in what he has said. And then the last idea is this, and that is there are either blessings or consequences based on how you respond to that word of the Lord. So we see that clearly here in Isaiah 7 and 8, that that those who trust in the Lord, those who seek his word, they are blessed. Those who wait on the Lord, those who trust in him. But those who don't trust in the Lord, those who are fearful of people and try to find their own way to navigate through life and, and ignore the word of the Lord, well, there's consequences for that. And throughout this passage, it clearly spells that out. And so... Even though we're talking about events that happened some uh, 2,700 years ago, the principles 
that Isaiah is declaring here are still very much alive and active, aren't they? Because really what Isaiah is doing and really what all the prophets are doing is they're building their messages off of the Torah, off of the law of God. They're, they're building their, their themes and their messages off of what God has already said. And so those truths, God's word, his, his wisdom abides. And so even though the historical circumstances, the events change, we still have that same responsibility to hear and trust and obey the word of the Lord. And so I hope that Isaiah's message to King Ahaz and the people of Israel long ago will also be a message for us today that we can take to heart.